Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Good morning. Let me add my welcome to Pastor James's welcome to you. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Tom Richter. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I am a pastor in Jamaica, Queens, who has become friends and uh, family, for that matter, with the folks at City on a Hill. And, uh, and so I speak here a few times a month. My job today is uh, middle relief, right? I'm, 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 I'm the setup man. Easter is two weeks away. That means next Sunday is Palm Sunday. In two weeks is Resurrection Sunday. And so uh, we're going to talk about, I know, I know, it's like you can't, you can't keep it in. Uh, we're going to talk today about John chapter 11, uh, because the triumphal entry happens in John 12, so I thought it'd be a logical place to jump in. Uh, it's going to be a familiar story to you, and so if I'm going to set up Easter, let's talk real briefly about what the point of Easter is, and I take this from the Gospel of John. Uh, uh, John wrote this amazing book where he even tells you, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he even tells you at the end of the book of John, here's why I wrote it. Here's why I wrote the Gospel of John. It comes down to your faith. He said, I wrote, and I could have picked a lot of different things, but I picked in particular these seven signs that lead up to the Holy Week, the Passion Week, and then the death, burial, and resurrection. I picked seven signs and then told you basically half of my gospel was these seven signs, these seven miracles, wedding at Cana, so forth, all until the last one, the ultimate one today we're going to talk about. And then I told you the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I could have picked a lot more, but I wrote these things. And he tells you, so that, you ready? Here's the whole point of my gospel. So that you might believe. And not just believe in anything. Not just, oh, believe, be sincere. No, 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 no. But believe something very specific. Believe that that Messiah we've been all looking for, that Messiah to which the whole Old Testament has been pointing to, that Messiah, the only one with the power and the kingly authority to set all the wrong right And not just that Messiah. He's not just a human Messiah, but the very Son of God. That one that is all God and all man, we found him. And I wrote this whole gospel that you might believe that that Messiah, that Son of God, is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. The one, he's the one. I know, you wouldn't have picked Nazareth. Maybe you wouldn't have picked Jesus. He's the one, I'm telling you. And I wrote all this so that you'd believe. And not just believe, but have life in his name. In other words, the goal is not just so that Easter, a lot of people who don't have faith suddenly come to faith, though that is part of it. But it's for those of us who have faith to grow in our faith. God is on this mission to mold us more and more into the image of Christ. That Paul puts it this way. I press on for that goal. What is it? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings becoming like him in his death so that I one day will attain the resurrection from among the dead. So God is on this mission to mold us into the image of Christ. He's on this mission to get you to be more and more like Jesus. You can word that in a lot of different ways. You could word it. I'd be satisfied if you said, God is on this mission to grow your faith. Awesome, that works. God is on this mission to get you, I I like to use conform to the image of Jesus. Great, that's a great way to look at it. God is on this mission to get you to know Christ more intimately, more deeply than you've ever known, to experience him. Fine, that's a great way to word it. But here's here's where it gets tough. Here's where we're going to look today. Here's where it gets a little uncomfortable for me. God is so passionate about your faith growing. God is so passionate about getting you more and more shaped in the image of Jesus Christ that he will will use all kinds of means to do just that. 
And that means he will often use circumstances to make you more like Jesus Christ. And they're not always the circumstances we would have picked, right? That's all. It's uncomfortable because we look at God who's on this mission to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ and we sort of forget that's his mission and we go, God, what are you doing? We look around our circumstances and very often, even good faithful people, we think God is doing something to us when what he really is trying to do is do something in us. But we look at God like, what are you doing to me? And God's like, yeah, yeah, but I'm trying to do something in you that's so hard to see i say uncomfortable because some of you have been there if you haven't been there maybe you can be uncomfortable with me you can imagine as you've seen it in the lives of others we see bad things happen to good people i'm talking about good faithful people and the 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 gooder and faithfuler they are the harder it is to understand why they're going through this pain. And maybe we think, maybe we wouldn't say it out loud, especially not in church. But sometimes we think, I don't, why would a loving God allow blank? Right? And it may not be in our own life, though often it is. But often it's in, we look in the life of another and we say, I, I'm sorry. I just don't see how a loving heavenly father would ever blank. What God, what are you up to? If you love us, if you are good, and if you're trying to, you know, you know, I've trusted you, I've been faithful, I've been good, why would you blank? This disease, this trouble, this job loss, this situation, this relationship, this divorce. God, what is going on? Why, why would a loving God allow blank? To me, one of the most famous examples of this exact point is illustrated in John chapter 11. Now, look, this is a famous story. Even if you are new to the scriptures, if you're new to the Bible, this may be your first day in church in a long time. Literally, you may have woken up and the birds are singing. It's sunny and you're thinking, I'm going to church, right? And you Google church, Middle Island. You're like the one next to Walmart. You found your way here. And even if you, you haven't read the Bible in years, you know this story. You know the story. It's the story of Lazarus. You know the story. It's a famous story, right? Lazarus, And we're going to read through this story. And the goal of today is simply to, to show you this. That, that God not only will use circumstances to build your faith. He will, like he will do anything to, to get that faith in us. To mold us into the image of his son. He takes our notions of what a good God would do or not do to get us to believe. And blows them up. And what we're going to see is God not only uses circumstances, but, and here, may I just open a can of theological worms that I'm not even fully prepared to answer. So let me just take the theological soda, shake it up, and here we go. Sometimes God even causes them. There, let that just spray over you, okay? Right? Now you're going to come with me afterward and you're going to say, Tom, did I hear you right in the sermon? You mean to tell me? The loving God not only allows tragedy, because I can kind of get with that, but you're telling me that he actually will orchestrate pain in a human's life? He will actually cause it? And I'm going to tell you now what my answer will be so that you don't even have to come ask me that. I'm going to look at you and say, you need to ask Pastor James Letchie that question. <laughs> and let him, no, I'm just kidding. I will tell you what, what uh, I've been studying a book called Trusting God Even When Life Hurts by Jerry Bridges. And um, I've really begun to resonate with this. Uh, what he says is, um, when you're in the middle of the pain, look, 
You don't need a theological treatise. You need a shoulder to cry on and a casserole. Right? That's what churches are for. When people grieve, they need shoulders to cry on and casseroles for one another. Right? Everybody knows that. That's what you do. You help each other grieve. And so he says, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm going to tell you this in the middle of your pain. But my job is to proclaim the truth. And I do believe, I, I'll say it, that God not only allows things to happen in our life, sometimes things that are painful. You ready? He even causes them. And I'll tell you why I believe that. Because that means, what, a sparrow can fall to the ground, but when that tragedy happened in your life, what, God was looking the other way? God was distracted for that moment, and if he allows it and he has the ability to stop it, how different is that from he causes it? God even sort of orchestrates and arranges, and I hold these three things to all be true at once. Yes, God will even allow slash cause pain in your life. Yes, he is absolutely loving. Yes, he is absolutely full of wisdom and knowledge that I don't have. Now, how all those things work together, I really will look at you and say, I just don't know. And I won't be one of those arrogant preachers who gets on the TV and says, now, here's why this national tragedy happened. It's because God was judging, you know, whatever, right? You ever hear these jokers after Hurricane Katrina? It's because of all that gambling down there, to which the guys I knew who were pastors whose churches were destroyed in New Orleans were like, we weren't gambling. (laughs) We were churches. Like, God hates us too, you know. I don't, I'm not here to say that there are not reasons. What I'm here to say is maybe we should back off on the whole, and I know the reason right now for everything you're going through, right? That's all. God will sometimes even orchestrate pain. I'll show you. And, and, and one last thing I'll say before I read this. I want to really, if we can, I'm going to go verse by verse through this story because I want us to experience, if possible, I want us to experience the story through the characters that were there. In the story of Lazarus... It, it's so hard. To, isn't it hard, especially if you've been reading the Bible for a while, to like go back and it's almost like we think, come on, Mary, come on, Martha. Like, what's the problem here? You, you, you know what I mean? It's like we know the ending of these stories. And so it's so easy for us to look and it's almost like we bring our knowledge of the happy ending with us when we read the story. Does that make sense? Because sometimes we look at the women going to the empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning. It's like, come on, you know. There's going to be angels, like, you know what I mean? But they didn't call Easter Sunday morning Easter. They called it darkest day in the history of the universe ever day, for which there's no Hallmark card. You see, this is a Canadian holiday, perhaps. But there's nothing, right? And so this is miserable. And, and, and why? Because they're in the middle of their story. When we come to the story of Lazarus, hey, spoiler alert. If you've never read the story of Lazarus, uh, he dies and Jesus raises him back from the dead. Like, spoiler alert. If you, did, you know, if you didn't know that, what? You know, read the Bible. But if you, if you already did, you knew that. How hard it is not to read that back into the story, right? And it's, what we want to do is experience with Mary and Martha the middle of the story. Why? Because the middle of the story, not the end, is where you live. That's where I live. And it's hard to live in the middle of the story, you know, because sometimes you get to the end of it and you're like, it's the end of the book. And somebody will come to you and say, it's just the end of the chapter. It's not the end of the book. But even they don't know the end of your story. You know what I mean? You know what's going to happen for some of you? Your grandkids are going to look back on the story of your life and they're going to go, what faith. It was probably so easy for you because look at how everything ended up. And you're going to look at them and go, Shunny? Or I don't know how you're going to talk. You know what I mean? You think it was easy? You think that was easy? All you see is the happy ending. And look, you were 
You're here. You exist. <laughs> right? Yeah, you see the happy ending and you see uh, all that stuff. You know how hard that was to, to like, live it in the middle, right? Think about that. You're, I mean, some of you, your minds are already like, I'm going to be a grandpa. <laughs> like, okay. For some of you, your minds are blown there. But you get my point? Your story's going to look easy to somebody. Why? Because they're going to see the end, but you're living it in the middle. So without further ado, uh, here we go. Verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. A little bit of background. He was from Bethany. That's the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So we got Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. These were benefactors of Jesus. They... Um, uh, were not only Jesus's friends, they were really close friends. He had the 12 disciples, but outside of them, we see Mary and Martha and Lazarus mentioned all the time in the Gospels. These were also people who no doubt supported his ministry financially. He loved to go to Bethany. Bethany was Jesus's favorite town. A buddy of mine in the church just had a baby girl. He named her Bethany. And I said, how'd you pick the name? He said, because it was Jesus's favorite place to hang out. And I thought, that's cool, you know, he, Bethany. So this is a great town. To give you an idea geographically, uh, if, Jeru- if the epicenter of the you know, Jerusalem is the center of everything. Bethany is sort of like the near suburbs, right? Um, uh, These are personal friends of Jesus. And so because he's sick, he's in Bethany and he's sick. Look what happens. So the sisters sent word to Jesus. They give these messengers. They say, go find Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. And I emphasize the word love. Now I want to point out a couple things about, um, there were some geographical details in uh, 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 in here that I think will help. So a couple things about this verse. One is they sent messengers, and um, I, I told you that, that Jesus knew this family really well. Look, the messengers don't even, when they get to Jesus, they don't even have to name Lazarus. All they have to do is say, hey, we're the contingency from Bethany. The one you love is sick, and Jesus knew. If you have a friend like that that you're so close with, they can just pick up the phone, you don't even look at call ID, and they can go, hey, it's me. And you know who they are, right? That's what's happening here. Hey, it's me. The one you love is sick. So there is no doubt. And I want us to really hone in on that word love because that's the part we start to doubt when we go through pain and we can't understand why. So in fact, let's just reinforce that together. Lord, the one you love is sick. Let's all read that. I I don't ask you to do this a lot, but humor me here. Uh, Read that quote with me. One, two, three. Lord, the one you love is sick. Okay, so from the Bible, Jesus absolutely loves Lazarus. The other thing is, he's not that far away. Now, Uh, I told you that uh, the epicenter was Jerusalem and the suburbs. Think of it this way. If the center of everything is Manhattan, then Bethany is like Astoria, Queens. Right? It's Astoria. Bethany is like Astoria. It's very cool. It'll never be like super cool. You know, but it's cool. And Jesus and his boys are hanging out in uh, Ronkonkoma. Okay? They're out here in Suffolk County. So Jerusalem, so it's, 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 it's Jerusalem, Astoria, Suffolk County, right? That's where he's hanging out. So the messengers jump on the L-I-double-R, change at Jamaica. They make their way to Jesus, and they're saying, hey, you come and go. I already got the round-trip ticket purchased. It's the city pass or whatever. You come in. We'll go into the city. We'll go do this, and, and you're totally going to heal him. Why? Because you love him. That's all important. You need to know that. You need to know that he loved Lazarus. You need to know that he was very close. He was within an L-I-double-R ride which again, they used feet and donkeys. But the point is, they, he could have made it very easily. And most of all, think of it this way. He, look, you know what's so precious about this verse? What is Lazarus, Mary, and Martha thinking? Okay, they've been financially supporting this guy, Jesus. They have seen his miracles. They believe in him. And Jesus is like, like this is his best friend. This is, this, this, is, this is his buddy, Lazarus. And here's what we know about Jesus. 
Jesus will heal like strangers. Think about what Jesus has done for strangers. I mean, absolute strangers. They're walking along. They see a dude, blind man, blind from birth. What do you want? I want to be healed. Sounds good to me. Boom! Healing right there. Never met the guy. Not just strangers. We've seen him heal. You ready for this? Enemies. Remember the centurion's servant? My servant's sick. Yeah, well, we don't care about you, sir. We, you're, you're the, you, as a Roman, uh, we hate you. And uh, we uh, feel like uh, what, we don't know what your servant has, but we hope that you get it. And your whole, your whole you know, cohort of soldiers gets it, right? What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Jesus healed him. And not only healed not, He's healing strangers. He's healing people he doesn't even, you know, that, that, that supposedly he's not even supposed to care about. What we know about Jesus is that, man, he will heal these people. So what's he going to do for his friend? I mean, he's not just going to heal him. This is a friend of Jesus. Look how Jesus takes care of strangers and even tax collectors. What? If he does that to them, he is going to hook Lazarus up. He's not even going to heal him. He's going to like heal him and make him a super athlete. I mean, he's going to go beyond. He's going to like hook him up. It's one thing to restore sight, but restore sight with laser vision. There's no telling what he's going to give this guy. He's going to hook him up. Everybody understand? I mean, come on. It's the one you love. He's healed strangers, right? Verse 4. When he heard this, because, I mean, it's Jesus, right? He's, he's going he's gonna to heal him. When Jesus heard this, he obviously does what? He heals him. When Jesus heard this, Jesus said, The sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. There's got to be more to verse 4, right? That you literally are going to give me a message to take back. Yeah, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so God's Son may be glorified through it. And like, sure enough, he doesn't, like the next verses, and he got on the train with them. Like, it's not there. And so they're like, and? Hmm. Well, <clears throat> Jesus, <clears throat> couldn't you just pray a little? You know, like, uh, uh, because remember that story about the centurion servant? You remember that? He healed the guy. He didn't even have to be there. He healed him wirelessly. And so he's thinking, if you can do that with the centurion servant, why would you not do it with Lazarus? Do it now, right now. No, he says, this sickness will not end in death. No, all you get is this word, this sort of cryptic, difficult to understand, this word. Whoa, whoa, so you've healed strangers, and you're telling me, you are now telling me that the word, not only is it all Jesus sent back as a message. He didn't bring himself. He didn't bring healing. He didn't even pray for you to be healed. All he brought was a word for you. And the word, you're not even going to like. Look at it carefully. The sickness will not end in death. So some, some promise that honestly doesn't look like that's really the truth. Because poor Lazarus like, do you feel like your sickness will end in death? Right? And it does. And then uh, it says, no, on top of that, no, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. L- let me get this straight. Let me get this straight. You're telling me that the whole reason Lazarus is sick. This goes back to what I said earlier in case you thought I was a little harsh. Uh, here it is in scripture. The whole reason Lazarus is sick is so that God... And God's son get glory. So that God is glorified and that God gets glory and God's son is glorified through the sickness. Now, this, this verse, you understand, this is a whole new category for a lot of people. A brand new category. You mean sickness, illness, and pain can be for God's glory? Let me hear you correctly. You're saying that a sickness, an illness, or a pain can be for God's glory? Glory and that God's son could be glorified through it? 
If that's true, your natural reaction may be like mine. Then do not sign me up for that kind of glory, right? Here's how I want to glorify God. You know how I want to glorify God? I want to glorify God like, you know those NFL players when they score a touchdown and they win the game in the post-conference, they're like, this is a great game and I want to give glory to God, you know? Which raises all these questions like, so God hates the other team, you know, but whatever. Leave that aside, but it's like, I give glory to God. That's how I want to give glory to God. No pain, but great success. Or like the Academy Award, I want to thank my agent, my producer, and most of all, God. You know, that, that's how I, I would like to bring glory to God like that, right? But here, it's not that at all, is it? All right? I want to bring glory to God by my testimony of how rich he's made me. I don't, I don't really want to be rich, just famous. I want, to, I want God to be glorified because of how famous. And then I can point to everybody and say, this is all because of God. You're, is, aren't you with me? Like every, We want glory in a way that doesn't cost us anything. And here, there it is in the scripture. This sickness went on into death. This happened. It is for God's glory. What comfort is that to Mary and Martha and Lazarus? You're telling me? You, it is so, that sounds so unkind that John actually has to clarify again. Like, it sounds so unkind. You're saying, what kind of God? That's not loving. That he would allow his children to go through pain? That's simply not loving. He, John knew we were going to think that. And so look at the next verse. Now, Jesus, because it's possible you forgot what I said a few verses ago, let me remind you, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. The only reason I can think that he wrote that twice is because he knew when he said this could happen for God's glory, he had to remind everybody, and yes, he still loves. Yes, he loves Lazarus. He loves Mary, and he loves Martha. He loves all of them. So, okay, so he loves them, fine. So what's going to happen? Well, it gets worse. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, like he rushed, no, he went to go see, no, he stayed where he was two more days. Now here's what's interesting about these verses. I'm going to flip back and forth real quick. See? So we go five, six, five, six, watch. When Jesus, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, I would think it should say, and yet, even though he loved them, however, he hurt, out of his love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So, because he loved them, look, when he heard Lazarus sick, he stayed where he was two more days. He's not just doing it for his glory, he's doing it out of love. As in, this is the best for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He's not only... He's not only orchestrating this pain in poor Lazarus's life, not to mention the grief of Mary and Martha, but he's not only doing it for his glory, he's doing it out of love. Now, how painful would those two days, 48 hours have been for Mary and Martha? Can we experience that with them? I know we know the end of the story, but put yourself in their sandals. How, how do you not grieve with them when this is the one Jesus loves them and he heals? Of course he can heal. How long? And here's where, uh, let's bring it just uh, 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 very personal. Some of you have been praying and all you've heard is the silence of God. And it's been two days. And for some of you, you know it's not just been two days, has it? Two weeks. For some of you, two years. Two decades in the silence of God. And all you've got to go on is this word and this promise. That all, all, you, all you have to cling to is the sickness will not end in death. It is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. And then verse 7. Somehow Jesus knows. And he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. 
Now, verse 8, they're going to point out some, some historical... This is, this is great. Uh, a couple things wrong with that. Let us go back to Judea. For one thing, the disciples are going, what is he doing? I don't know. But, but probably they have an idea. See, they don't think like we think. Jesus doesn't care about him or whatever. They think, I'm, I bet I know why Jesus doesn't want to go back into uh, Judea, which is like Queens County, you know, ne- next to that area, right? Because you're getting too close to Manhattan. It's because he's getting too close to Jerusalem. Why? Well, they point it out in the next verse. But Rabbi, they said, I don't know if you've forgotten this, but they attempted to assassinate you, you know? Here, a short while, it wasn't that long ago. It was three chapters. A short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. And now you're going back? I mean, they're thinking is, well, obviously, the reason he doesn't want to go back there is we don't want to go back into that hornet's nest. The only way we escaped at the last minute, ninja-like, we jumped on the Roosevelt Island tram, we made our way, we scrambled up right. We do not want to go back into the hornet's nest anywhere near Jerusalem because somebody's going to find out you're there. And the last time we were there, we tried, they tried to kill you. And Jesus just knows that all of us, the 12 disciples, we are totally just looking out for you. Because we follow you, we're your disciples, we're your followers, and when rocks fly at you, the thing is, we're the bystanders. Like, they also fly at us, and they sort of throw them indiscriminately. I'm convinced, right? Peter's like, you know... So, Jesus, but honestly, I mean, okay, a little bit of us doesn't want to go back. But mostly for your sake, we don't want to go back to Judea because they just tried to stone you. So this is a bad idea. Jesus answers them with a very short sermon. He gives a little bit of teaching. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Gives this little teaching. And after he gives this little teaching in verses 9 and 10, he, after he had said this little sermon, he went on to tell them, look, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. To which they're thinking, I don't know how you knew that. Uh, but we've seen you do all kinds of miracles, and so, okay, you know, whatever. But now they're thinking, but wait a minute. Light bulb goes off. This is, this is great news. If he sleeps, it means he's no longer under the fitful torment of the sickness. Now he's going to get better. Great. And so Jesus has to, uh, well, they ask him. His disciples replied, that, that's great news. Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus, of course, he has to clear, John has to tell us the sort of, Jesus was using a, a euphemism. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So Jesus, unfortunately, has to take away the euphemism and tell them plainly, Lazarus is dead, right? <laughs> to, which, to, which now, I, to which now, they're, they're, now they're really confused. They're saying, okay, we didn't know how you knew he was asleep. He's checking his face scroll. They didn't, they didn't have any of that. So he says, I, how, how you knew he was asleep, we didn't know. But now you somehow know that he's dead. But even then, it's sort of... It sort of gets us off the hook. The good news is now we don't have to go anywhere near Jerusalem. No telling what this guy's going to say next. Lazarus is dead. I guess, you know, we don't understand what you're, you know, what you're, uh, we're doing there. You say you love their friends, but somehow you held back. And now, and for your sake, I was glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Yes. Yeah. Wait, what? Wait, what? They're all hearing that going. Back that up just a second. <clears throat> For your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Jesus, I know I've heard you talk about faith and I know you've talked about belief before, but I find it hard to believe that you're doing this for our sake. Like, I get that faith is important, but faith is that important? What if, somebody asks the obvious question here. What about Lazarus' sake? Huh? What about Mary's sake? What about Martha's sake? Hmm? 
Hasn't anybody gone through suffering and go, what is going on here? Can you imagine if you got the slightest bit of answer to that? What would God say? What if Mary and Martha had heard that and got the teeniest, tiniest bit of an answer as to the why? And just, he didn't even give them the big picture. Just gave them the tiniest thing so that these 12 disciples, their faith will grow. That's worth Lazarus' death for these disciples to grow in their faith? And on top of that, but now let us go to him? I mean, that, it seems to me that, that you, you know, now would be not the time to go to him. He's already dead. What can we do? And, and you put, on top of that, you put Lazarus, Mary, and Martha through all this because our faith, you know, they're sort of, I don't think they're being accusing, but they're, you know, they, they have to be thinking accusing thoughts. It, it appears you're causing all this pain for the faith of people. So what do the disciples do? Well, the next verse, look, I, okay, I skipped over verse 16, but. The next verse, Tom, here's what happens. Thomas, and I take this personally, I was named after Thomas. And it bothers me that he's got this nickname, Doubting Thomas. And so you'll forgive me if I sort of defend Thomas, even if it bends probably what he said a little bit. So here's how I read. The, what Thomas says is this, and there's two ways to read it. I'm convinced what he said was this. He stood up. Brave music began playing in the background. And he said to all those cowardly disciples, he said this. Jesus is going back to Judea. He needs us. And this is what he said. Let us also go that we may die with him. I just want to be with my Lord if it costs me my life. But as a pastor, I have to be honest. It more likely was said like this. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go and we'll die with him. When you go to seminary, you learn Aramaic, and so there's a few things it can add to the text. And, and in the original Greek, right after that, there's two Greek words. Wah, wah. And, but you have to go to seminary to learn that really technical, sad trombone, aorist tense. Let us also go. We'll die with him. I mean, you know, it's sort of depressing. You know, we're all going to die. This is a death mission. Hey, let the plane's going down. Let's all go down together. And, uh, but he does. They all end up going. And uh, now we've got this confusing scene where the disciples are going, wondering what Jesus is doing. Why didn't he just heal him? You've missed the funeral. And so on his arrival, we learn that Jesus, uh, Jesus found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, John gives us some geographic data that I didn't want to focus on, so I didn't put it up on here. But just listen. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus coming, she went out to meet him. Mary stayed at home. He arrived on the scene, and here we go. Martha goes out. She meets Jesus, and she says what any of us would have said. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She says what all of us would have said. I thought you loved us. I thought you cared about us. And now you show up? I mean, you, you didn't even come to the funeral. I, I would have said that same thing. I, I probably would have said it even with anger. What I'm blown away by, and I don't know, I pray that I would say this, but I don't know that I would, just being honest, is what she says next. Because this is what everybody says. Lord, if you'd been here, it's almost accusatory. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. It's just a fact. You, you could have saved him. You could have stopped it. And that's why when I do counseling with people, if they really pin me down theologically and they want to know, are you saying that God actually like, has the ability to uh, not allow something and does, that he causes something? That's where I say, honestly, yes. 
Yes, God could have stopped that pain. He is completely sovereign. He has power. I just don't always know why he didn't. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But here's the part. Here's the part. Look, look. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Look at that kernel of faith. Isn't that something? I told you people sort of hate on doubting Thomas for being doubting. Sometimes we hate on Martha. Oh, always serving so much, she misses the point. She doesn't miss it here. She nailed it. Even now, I know God will give you whatever you ask. And, and Jesus takes that kernel of faith. And look what he says. Oh, your brother will rise again. Now, I, if you've ever been through grief recently, you know this. If the person you love dies is a believer, we believe what happens is their body goes into the ground. Or whatever, is cremated, you know, whatever. But their, their, their spirit then immediately goes and is with Jesus in paradise. You can call it heaven, but it's confusing because it's not like new heaven, new earth, which is what we're really waiting for. But it's heavenly, certainly. I mean, it's paradise. You're with Jesus. And what are you doing up there in G- with Jesus? You're sort of waiting in the blessed, you know, with all these saints, and you're waiting. What are you waiting for? You're waiting for that moment where Jesus says, and now, and he comes down and heaven comes to earth revelation 21 style and a new heaven a new earth wipes away every tear ah you know right and we get this glorified and what happens the dead in christ will rise and those who are still alive will meet him in the air at the trumpet sound and man there it is new heaven earth right because heaven and earth are one and all eternity that's what we're talking about when heaven it's like heaven comes down and we get this earth and you think the grand canyon's pretty now wait do you see it in the new earth right so that's what we're we're we're, we're waiting for um But when we're at a funeral and our loved one has died, Jesus says what sounds like, the first part of what he says sounds like what a lot of well-intentioned people say. What they say is, well, isn't it, I know you're in pain, but isn't it nice to say, and they, look, they mean well, don't like get in their face and be like, theologically, you have harmed me. No, 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 no. These people mean well, but what they say is, isn't it a comfort to know that one day you will see them again? Of course it's a comfort. But to anybody who's ever heard that in the grieving line of the funeral, you know, it, it's meant to be a comfort. It's just not. Because what, you know that, right? But it doesn't help you right then in the loss of that person. And so when he says, your brother will rise again, Martha says what I would, you know, say in that moment. Yeah, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And that's probably the end of the conversation for most of us at the funeral home. Because we're not Jesus. Jesus can add, oh, <clears throat> You, you mentioned that. Um, I am the resurrection and the life. That's something no human can say. That's something God can say. What does he mean by that? I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying, Martha, you think that when I talk about resurrection, I'm talking about, oh, in the by and by, one day when heaven meets earth. I'm about to do something that will let you discover truth about me that you would have never known without this pain. I know and the Gospel of John is clear. You've been watching through these seven signs. You remember when I turned water into wine at Cana. You remember walking on the water. You remember feeding the 5,000. You remember the blind man and so forth. This is the capstone. This is the one. So far, I have showed the world that I have power on this side of the grave. What I'm about to show you is that I, I don't just have power on the other side of the grave. I am the power for the other side of the grave. It's not just that I know the secret to how you can be resurrected. I am the resurrection and the life. It's not like, well, Jesus gives me some power to be raised from the dead. I am in Christ. And because I'm in Christ, I'll be raised from the dead. He's saying anyone who is united in me, I am the resurrection and life. And what I'm about to do is about to to, to break open all formatting that you've put on the power of Messiah 
Messiah or the power of God. I'm not just going to have power on this side of the grave. I've got power on the other side. Let me explain further. When I say I'm the resurrection and the life, I mean it literally. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever believes and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. For those who are in Christ, there's this sort of sense that they will never taste death. Why? Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What's, what's wrong with that? Paul says, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And then the very next thing that happens after all that waiting in paradise is to come and get a glorified, resurrected body. Where did you taste death in that? Why? Because you were in Christ, mystically united to Christ. We are in Christ. He's about to say a few chapters later that I am the vine, you are the branches of man, remains in me, I in him. The same bears much fruit because you are in me. There's a sense in which you will never taste death. And I can show you. All that's just theory. But I'll show you. All I need to know is this. This is all I need to know. Do you believe it? That's all I need to know. Look, here's why that question's so huge. Martha, I know you are in the midst of total pain and total grief. All I want to know is, you believe me? That's it. Here's what I love about that. That's the story. That's what you're being asked right now. Because what Martha did not get is the same thing you don't get. And that's all the answers for the why of all your suffering, right? You know that, right? That God is, Romans 8, 28, causing all things to work together. He's weaving this amazing tapestry for all the universe. And all you get to see is the back of the tapestry. And you're going, confusing and weird. And why are these threads happening? My life is a train wreck, right? Yeah, dude, wrong side of the tapestry. From God's perspective... Every look, when we see, when all we will understand it better by and by, and really, when all this stuff's revealed, everybody is going to go, uh, right? Right? But we don't get to see that. Neither did Martha. And that's it. Do you believe? Without getting to see it, do you believe? I mean, really, what, what was Jesus? What, what? People in the middle of suffering say, but God, why? Really, how is God supposed to answer that question? Your brain can't hold the real answer to that question. The best he could do is give you a little eyedropper answer. But even then, what was he supposed to say? Martha, I need you to believe in me because here's what's going to happen. I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. That alone. Okay, I've heard enough, right? But but, but I'm going to do that because of the faith of these disciples. Because after the, well, there's going to be persecution. They're going to spread the gospel to the whole world. In fact, I'm also, there's going to be some people who don't believe. They're called these Pharisees. And that's going to lead to my death on the cross, which is going to lead to my burial and resurrection, ultimate ascension. And then Martha, this is going to blow your mind, but there's a place called North America. And she's like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The world is round, not flat. Stop! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, hang with me. On North America, there's a place called Queens. You mean like kings and queens? No, no, no. It's a county. It's very hard to explain. There's a, there's a, there's a redneck from Kentucky. His name's Tom Richter. He rambles. Stay with me, Martha. He is going to... I know. There's 2,000 years. You think I'm going to come back and it's all going to end short story? Listen, 2,000 years from now, there's a guy from Kentucky who's going to be in Queens. He's going to drive to Long Island. I know it's getting confusing. He is going to tell this very story... On April 6, 2014, I know, they changed the dating system after me. But yeah, in the year of me, 2014, he's going to tell this exact moment. He's going to tell this story. He's going to actually repeat in English. I know it's a weird language. You'll never understand it. He's going to repeat this question. Do you believe in me? That's what hangs in the balance. Now, you don't get to see any of that. You don't get to see any of that. I'm not going to show you any of that because your brain would explode. <laughs> I'm not going to show you any of that. But you can stick my hand out and say, will you believe me? Listen, if you're in suffering right now, I'm not talking theory. I'm talking your life. You don't get to see the end. And you can't come to me or James with some magic answer for why. You get Jesus going, will you, do you believe? 
In the middle of that story, do you believe? And in the middle of that story, look what Martha says. How great is this? Yes, Lord. I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God who's to come into the world. I don't even know if Martha herself knew what she was saying when she said, yes, Lord. But she said, yes. My faith is not just in the stuff that happens to me. In the midst of all this pain, my faith is in you, in a person. And you know the rest of the story. He, he, after he said this, he went in, called Mary aside. You know, they go find Mary. Mary, the teacher's here. He's looking for you. Mary heard this. She gets up, runs out. Jesus had not yet entered the village. He was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who'd been with Mary in the house comforting, notice how quickly she got up. They followed, thinking that she was just going back to the tomb to have a moment there. And they were supposed to be grieving with her, so they went. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was, we see the same thing happen again. She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you, where have we heard this before? Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, they replied. And so Jesus makes his way to the tomb, surrounded by all these people. In this great moment, everybody's broken, everybody's weeping. He's deeply moved, troubled. That word can mean angered. I don't know what the, what the implication there. He's, he's deeply moved by something. And when he gets to the tomb, uh, it says Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Uh, why was Jesus weeping? I've heard lots of answers, and I think that they're all good. Some people say Jesus was weeping because, remember, he was fully God and fully human. And uh, when humans lose people they love, they weep, and that's okay. Everybody in here knows that, right, what Martha was doing? I mean, I don't want to belabor the point because it's a sermon in and of itself. But let me just real briefly, if you're going through grief, you know what Martha did right there? She's a model for Christian, for Christian bereavement. And you need to do two things, and you need to do them both. And you need, you need to do them both. You need to grieve and believe. I was brokenhearted because recently I went to a funeral service where I feel like a lot of them uh, had sort of uh, lost their faith and they're, they're, they're uh, uh, sort of humanist. And uh, uh, let me tell you what they did great. They were so good at grieving and they were so good at coming around one another. Um, and they gave each other permission to grieve. And words like, I'm here for you. And friends and family are all you've got. You need to cling to us. It was beautiful. I was moved and a little bit convicted. Uh, because you need to grieve, right? So there's this, but, but, but what secular humanists do really well is tell people to grieve. What they do not so well is give any word of hope. And that's what I kept waiting for, was any word of hope. And it wasn't there. No On the other hand, sometimes as Christians, we, we tend to be like, um, it's somehow a sin to grieve. Or come on, get over it. Don't you have faith? Believe. And that's wrong too. It is not a sin uh, to grieve. Just the opposite. It's human. And uh, it's perfectly okay. And Jesus did it. So my point is simply do both. Grieve and believe. Fair enough? It's not like when you get saved, you become some cyborg. I had my feelings removed and now I'm saying, no, 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 no. Uh, you, you know, grieve and believe. Martha does both those things. And Jesus here, we see him weeping. We see him grieving. So some people think he was just grieving over the loss of Lazarus. Other people think he was weeping at the lack of faith at the people around him. I've heard that. Fine. That's great too. Some people think that when he looks inside the tomb, he sees in a grand scheme, not just Lazarus, but, but, but death and the wages of sin is death. And he thinks about, I will be in this tomb. And he's pondering what's coming next, the cross. And it's sort of a, 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 a foreshadowing of what's coming in the Garden of Gethsemane. I, all of that, yes. I was preaching at a youth camp talking about Lazarus. And some kid came up to me afterward and was like, uh, Pastor Tom, I, I think Jesus was crying because he, you know, he's seen God's glory and heavenly glory. And you know, I think he was sort of sad because Lazarus was in heaven. And I think it broke his heart that he was going to have to put him back on stinky old earth. And I was like, 
High five, you theologian. Yes, like that's great too. Whatever. Uh, the point is, here he's overcome with emotion. He entered into our pain and he wept. And so what happens next? Well, let me uh, summarize. He, he says, roll away the stone. Um, uh, uh, t- t- you know, this is where verse 39, take, <clears throat> take, yeah, take away the stone. I, I didn't put him up here. I just wanted to point him out. Take away the stone. And they object. And you would too. But, but Lord, said Martha, whoa, whoa, as in, let me get this straight. You show up late. You don't even make the wake. You don't even show up to the funeral. You're claiming to love us. And now you want one last look at Lazarus? I'm sorry. But he's, look, at, look at the exact objection she makes. I do not want my last... You know how smell is our most powerful form of memory? I'm sorry. I don't want my last memory of my brother. I want it to be happy times, not sickness and death. And now, just because you didn't get to see the body before we closed up the tomb, I'm sorry. Look, she objected. By now, But Lord, by this time, there is a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. I don't uh, ever do this. I don't think. I rarely do this. But I, I will this one time recommend you go home and read this story in the King James Version. Because this verse is priceless. It says, but Lord, he stinketh. And you better believe it, that. He did, man, four days. He had this powerful odor. And Jesus said, didn't I tell you, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. He praised this prayer. I knew you always hear me. I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, what's he doing now? Father, what we're about to do, I'm good. I don't need this This prayer is not for me. We're good. This is Babe Ruth calling his shot. Look what I'm about to do. I'm saying this verbally. I'm praying this so that everybody here, their faith may grow. And then he looks, he walks up, and he cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And I read one commentary who said he had to be clear and say, Lazarus, come out, because there's so much resurrection power in Jesus. If he had just said, come out, the whole graveyard would have opened up. (laughs) I meant Lazarus. I meant Lazarus. Am I right? Woo! Lazarus, he says, come out. And you know, verse 44, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. They were so shocked when Lazarus sort of makes his way out, still bound in the grave clothes, right? They don't even move because they're shocked at this, that Jesus has to tell them, well, take off his grave clothes and let him go. Which is a whole other sermon about Christians who get saved who are still wearing the stinky grave clothes of death. Take them off, man. If your son sets you free, you're free indeed. You don't need the stuff of death. You're alive. Can't preach that one. Uh... Uh, take off the grave clothes, let him go. And uh, that's it. That's it. Uh, The last verse here I just wanted to point out because it shocks me every time I read it. So you just saw the dead man come back from the dead. It says, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. Question, how is that word not all? Talk about being hard to please. Right. Um, I think at that point it's it's willful it's willful disbelief because I think the evidence has mounted the case is made I think there's something else going on and uh, I don't know but uh, I I mean there it is something that's so obvious to someone can be um, uh, impossible to see to someone else I believe that God has has to do his thing to undo that uh, but in, at any rate, um, he did that for the faith of the people. And so sometimes I, I like to sort of summarize sermons by giving you sort of one line to hang on to. And the, the line I would want you to hang on to is this. Stop measuring God's love for you by your circumstances. Measure it by the cross. That's it. 
So that's the thing you write down. That's the thing you put in your heart. That's the thing you're, you're thinking. Hey, that was a great story about Lazarus. Man, there was so much in there, so much to hang on to. What's the takeaway? Stop measuring God's love for you by your circumstances. Measure it by the cross. Like if you, it, There is a measure of his love, and it's Calvary's cross. And we're going to transition now into a time of uh, remembrance of his sacrifice, where we partake of the bread and the, the cup, and we remember it. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, forgive us when we measure our circumstance, when we measure your love for us by our circumstances. Father, I thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, this story was recorded for us perfectly. Thank you for the Bible. And thank you for John 11. And we see real emotion here. We see humans doing um, the best they can and, and, and trying to stumble through. And we see your grace and your sovereignty and your love and your wisdom. And we step back from that story and we realize we cannot begin to understand what you're doing through suffering. And so forgive us when we just automatically assume that you love us and therefore would never allow anything bad. Father, forgive us when we measure your love for us by our circumstances. And train us, God. Put it in our hearts, especially leading up to Easter. In the next two weeks, we ask your rich blessings upon this church. Even as we, as we look at the cross through that, um, that uh, uh, whether it's stations of the cross or whether just holding it in our mind's eye, but help us to remember when you stretched out your arms on Calvary's cross, your great love for us. Without seeing the future, without seeing what you're going to do, help us to believe. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.